turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. I promise you we'll make it through 1 Timothy eventually. Uh, six chapters. We're uh, be praying. We need to, uh, in, in April and May, is uh, we would like to do a, an emphasis on um, orphan and uh, fostering and just look at what the Bible says about that. And so we're, we're building to that. So I have a, a ceiling above me to, to get through this book, even though we're spending weeks just here in the first few verses of chapter 2. But I think if we were honest, prayer, though it's really one of the easiest, most convenient disciplines that we could be a part of as Christians, unfortunately, oftentimes it's one of the most neglected. And we saw a few weeks ago as we began this chapter, the main point, and it's there on your handout, that a prayer that all people may be reached with the gospel should permeate the life of the church. That's really what the focus of this section is speaking to. Prayer that the gospel would go forth. We, this is, again, 315. I'm writing these things so you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of truth. Paul is writing to Timothy on how to set up and how to really establish what we're calling some house rules. And the reality is that we, we exist for the glory of God, but through the advancement of the gospel. What we do here, we gather to worship, we gather to grow, we gather to, to be made mature. Why? So that then we can scatter effectively. Yeah, this would be sort of the, the boot camp or the, the barracks. We come here, sharpen our swords, clean our guns, you know, understand the word better, align our theology with the word. Why? So that we can go out unified as troops and fight. And, and you know, the temptation is for us to neglect prayer, but the temptation, as we've seen already, is for us to abuse prayer. And here's what I mean by that. John Piper, and we showed the video one time, and we won't show it again, but John Piper said once famously that prayer is a wartime walkie-talkie. It's not an intertime for calling the butler. It's a wartime walkie-talkie. It's a wartime walkie-talkie, meaning prayer is a declaration that, that the enemy is greater than we are, that we need help, that we can't do it on our own. It's not meant to call the butler to change the thermostat or to fluff the pillows. And, and I think if we were honest, maybe all of us are guilty of abusing prayer in that way. But, but another way is forgetting that the, the battle that we're engaged in as believers is a spiritual battle. It's supernatural. Seeing men or women repent of their sins and profess Jesus Christ is a, is a spiritual, supernatural thing. It's not, it's not up to my wisdom. It's not up to your wisdom. It's not up to me being clever or you being clever. It, it's up to God granting that. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, says that God would, that would remove the scales off their eyes. It talks about that, that Satan has blinded the minds and the hearts of the unbelieving. That the battle we wage in, the war that we... The war that we fight in, is a, it's, it's a supernatural battle. It's not just flesh and bones. And that's why Timothy, very early, Paul, very early on in his letter to Timothy, 
in setting up the church says, first of all, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. The church ought to be a praying people. It ought to be a people that, again, the, the reason is that prayer is an open admission. We saw that, that without God, we can accomplish nothing. Without God, we can accomplish nothing. We saw in John 4 how Jesus, in speaking to the Samaritan woman, said, if you knew who it was that asked you for a drink, you would ask me for a drink. We said that, that, that praying and not praying is in direct relationship to knowing who Jesus is. That if we really, really knew him, we'd pray. That there was a connection between not knowing him. We, we talked about how that John 14, 13 says that prayer is the pursuit of God's glory. And John 16, 24 says also that prayer involves the pursuit of our joy. But here's the problem. We, we can't hijack prayer only for our joy. Primarily, it's about God's glory. Again, primarily, it is a humble confession that God, without you, we can do nothing. That we need you, that we rely on you, we depend on you. And you'll see here, you'll see on your outline in, in letter A, in, in just furthering this first point, that God has commanded prayer. Why has He commanded prayer? And what has what He commanded that we pray about? And you'll see there, God's plan involves all kinds of praying for all kinds of people. He says that very clearly in verse 1, that prayers and petitions and thanksgivings and treaties be made on behalf of all men. Paul here uses four different words for prayer. They're not all together distinct in meaning, but if you were to look at the, the nuances in the Greek, you would see that Paul is mentioning different things here. The, the word there, I, I'm reading out of a New American Standard. You, you may have a different translation, but mine says that entreaties. The word entreaty there, that is a prayer that stems from a sense of need. It's recognizing a need. It's, it's recognizing our lack of sufficiency. It's recognizing God's sufficiency. It's recognizing that I'm not capable of all things, that He is, and you're just crying out to God out of a sense of need. A specific need. The word prayers there, mine says entreaties and prayers. The word prayers there, that is a very general term for prayer. Well, one commentator I was reading saying that the Greek there would lend itself to sort of give us this day our daily bread. It's just a general, Lord, in general, we rely on you. It's not necessarily attached to a specific need. It's just in general. Maybe it's wisdom. Maybe it's godliness. Maybe it's repentance. Maybe it's revival. It's, it's general there. Things that we need in our lives regularly. Daily bread. Next mind says entreaties and prayers. It says petitions. The word petition there. A cool word. It literally means to converse freely. It would literally just be a conversation. You ever just conversing with somebody? You ever just catching up and there's no real agenda? You're not trying to get anywhere with it. You're not trying to get anything from them. You're just simply conversing with them. It, 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 it literally point, it reminds us of, of what we saw last week and reminds us of, of every the first Sunday of every month when we take the Lord's Supper. It reminds us, listen, we can go freely before God at any time, any place, and talk to Him one-on-one. -on -one. Hebrews 7.25 makes that very clear to us. Just talk. No agenda. 
not wanting anything. You're just talking. You're just enjoying the fellowship of being known and knowing God. Communion, if you will. Fellowship. Lastly, mine says thanksgivings. It points to the fact that that we not only express our petitions, but prayer is to be used to express our gratitude to a holy God for acting on our behalf. I mean, if we're honest, a lot of times I think our prayers, they, they involve a lot of needs and probably not a lot of gratitude. A lot of wants. Probably one of the shortcomings is not a lot of times going back to God and saying thank you. Thank you for my daily bread. Thank you for even things that I didn't even know to pray for, as Romans 8 says, that the Holy Spirit interceded on our behalf. Thank you for every day your promise is being true. Every day I can get up and, as Amy said, that there is grace waiting on me, John 1.16. Every morning your grace is brand new. Literally, there is a deposit of grace in your account, believer, every single morning for you to get through that day. Not tomorrow's. Not the next days, but today, when you woke up, there was enough grace in your account for you to get through today. And God has promised that. And what Paul is saying here to Timothy and is reminding us is, every single one of us in here have different needs at different times. But at all times, at all times, no matter what, we need God. We desperately need God. No matter whether life is great right now, no matter if, if, if you're at the bottom of the barrel right now, listen to me, we need God. We need Him. And not only do we need all kinds of prayers, but we need to pray for all kinds of people. Paul here in, in, verse, in verse 1, verse 2, verse 4, verse 6, he mentions all men, all men, all men. The, the word there is the gen, it's anthrop, anthropos. It's the generic word for people. It doesn't just mean men as far as a, a, a gender. It's talking about all people. In verse 8, he will use a word for men that means specifically man, not woman. But here he's saying all, per, all people. Regardless of race, regardless of nationality, regardless of their walk, regardless of anything, here, here's what he's saying. We ought to be a people that pray for every single person. And, and, and again, no ethnicity, no culture, no, no none of these things that divide us. What Paul is saying is none of that is beyond our prayers. And this is especially relevant with what we see today in our culture. And I, I get all the politics, and, and I'll be the last one, to, the first one to tell you I'm a, I'm a moron when it comes to politics. I don't, to a fault, I'm a big sovereignty of God guy. I, look, y'all can do whatever you want to do. I know the king who's coming back one day, and he's going to make it all right, and I just trust him. And whether that's right or wrong, I don't know. But I'm not a political guy, and, and I'm, not, I'm not making a political statement here. That's what I'm saying. I'm just simply saying here is this. Don't forget that, guess what, if you trace your lineage back, every single one of us were immigrants to America. J just like in this church, you know what, you've been grafted into the body of Christ by faith, by, through grace. You didn't earn it, you didn't warrant it, but here's the problem. Once we hang out here in the church a little while, you know what, you and I tend to start thinking that we earned it, that we deserved it, that we're better than the people who are on the outside. 
That's pride. It's being forgetful. It's the same thing if you go back to Deuteronomy 6. God says, look, I'm going to put you in this land that I promised you. And when you get there, he says this, don't forget. He says, when you live in houses that you didn't build, when you reap grapes and vineyards that you didn't grow, when you drink from cisterns that you didn't dig, here's the deal. Don't forget that it was me who put you there, not you who earned it there. Guess what you immediately see Israel doing? They forget that it was grace. You forget that it was grace that got you there. Just like we as Americans can be real... I did not choose to be born to Terry and Norma Basham in Tallahassee, Florida as a part of the United States. I didn't choose that. God chose that for me. And I get safety and all that, but listen to me. We as a people... These, these issues are, are challenging on a spiritual basis. We've got to take these things to the Word of God and come up with convictions based on the Word of God, not what we feel. Because listen to me, if you leave it up to our feelings, I can be as hateful as anyone to another person. I can be as judgmental as the next toward another group of people based on how some of them have acted. The reality is some of us as Christians ain't acted real well at times. It's grace. It's grace. And, and the reality is this. I've been saved by grace. You know what God's called me to do? Extend that very same grace that I was saved by, extended to others. God loved me when I was an enemy. Romans 8 through 10. I'm not saying we shouldn't be wise. I'm not saying, I'm not saying we should just be silly about it. I'm not saying we should go look for trouble. You don't see that in the Bible. I'm saying that we ought to, that we ought to take every single thing... Just like Corinthians says, taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. It does this attitude line up with the Word of God? Does this attitude line up with how I've been loved by God? And what he's saying here is there is no person so high, so mighty, there's no person that's bad enough to not be prayed for. And specifically, look at verse 2, for kings. He says, here's the first thing he says to pray for. For kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil wife and all, life in all godliness and dignity. The first thing he says to pray for is the government, those who are in authority over you. The, the, the beauty is this. You may never get to speak to that person about God, but you can speak to God about that person. I'll probably never meet the president. I'll probably never make an attempt to meet the president. But I can talk every day to, the, to, to God about the president. And I can talk to the same God who says that the, hearts, that the heart of the king are like rivers in the hand of the living God. And, and again, Paul specifically singles out prayers for those who are in authority in government. Here, here's the irony here, or here's the challenge. If you realize who was a leader in this time, it was a man named Nero. Nero later executed Peter and Paul, and history tells us that Nero lit his gardens in the evenings with Christians on pitchforks covered with pitch to light up his garden. And Paul says, you know what? Pray for him. Pray for him. A lot of things he doesn't say there to do. He says, pray for him. And, and here's the point. You want to do something about our leaders? Pray for them. Start with praying for them. Pray for them. Very clear in Scripture. God may lead you to do other things, and, and that's between you and the Lord. There's a lot about 
You know, there's a lot of things that we have to just, we're going to stand before the Lord and give an account for. Here's what I'm saying. The Bible is very clear that we're to pray for our leaders. And, and why? Why? Look what it says. God's plan involves the spread of the gospel so that all will be saved. That's what he's saying in 2 through 4. Ultimately, we're praying for our leaders that they would be favorable to the gospel and it spread. He says that we might enjoy a tranquil and quiet life. But listen, our prayers ultimately, that's not ultimately for you and me. That's personally, that's so that you and I can grow in godliness and in dignity and in, in, in view of the maximum spread of the gospel. It's not that you and I be comfortable. It's that the gospel would spread. He's saying that pray that your leaders would be favorable to the gospel so that it could advance as far as it would advance. That, that's what he's saying. That is the ultimate goal here. It's the gospel and the advancement of God's kingdom. And yet, the words he says, their godliness and dignity, they point to the outward manifestation of a Christian's character. Here's what he's saying. Not only pray for your leaders, but it also matters how you and I as believers live. It matters how we live. Paul is concerned here with the testimony of God's people. How we live matters. How we live influences people. The reality is, is under persecution, uh, and a lot of times Christians cave in. There's a whole letter to Hebrews that is written about the, the dangers of, of what happens under persecution. And what he's saying is, pray that they would be favorable to the gospel. Pray that they would observe your godliness and see that the prophet, they would be favorable to the gospel through how you live. And, and we saw this in Jeremiah uh, chapter 29, when we did our context series, and we looked at Jeremiah 29, 11, L listen, they're going into Babylonian captivity. Israel, God is sending his people into Babylonian captivity. And look at what he, listen what he says. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was not an accident. God's doing this. He's disciplining his people, as Bill said. Build, listen to what he says to them. In captivity, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters, and multiply there and do not decrease. Then this is the key verse. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will have welfare. That's exactly what Paul is saying in 1 Timothy 2. The welfare of this city is your welfare. Pray to that end. But, but you see, just as in Jeremiah 29, live exemplary lives to the glory of God to that end. I'm not saying all this other stuff. I'm just speaking to what the scriptures speak to. All this other stuff, I'm not, I'm, I'd have to think that through. I'm saying specifically, here's what he says, Christian, you want to change culture? Pray and live according to the word of God. Seek the welfare of your city. Live out your beliefs before a watching world. Do good to those who persecute you, Romans 12. That's what he's saying. The, the, again, Israel was in... in in bondage, they were in captivity to foreign gods whom God had put there, and that's what he said to them. 
And the reality is that no person or group is left out here. No race, no nationality, no economic status, nothing, nothing takes a person beyond the bounds and beyond the reach of the gospel. Nothing. Romans 5.20, where sin abounds, guess what? Grace much more abounds. No matter how much they've sinned. That, we saw that in, in verse 15. Paul himself used his example. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Paul gave, put him, hey, you want exhibit A? I got exhibit A on how bad you can be, and yet the grace of God can still save you. Exhibit B, he would have put up his life and said, you want to be, you want to you want to, approach self-righteousness i got that too you know what it fell short as well because everything philippians 3 everything that i once counted as gain you know what i count as loss compared to the surpassing value of knowing jesus christ whom i have suffered the loss of all things he says that i may know him not only the power of his resurrection but philippians 3 10 the fellowship of his sufferings whether it's self-righteousness or whether it's just unruly sin the gospel of Jesus Christ is the answer to both. And, and it requires prayer. I, I was reminded this past week with, a, you know, publicly they would not want this, but uh, there's a lady named Laura. And, and if you know, you know the Cordovas, they have Chloe. Chloe's mother is Laura. And um, John and Alicia and Glenda and... Tom and them met her through safe families. They, they fostered her child for a while. And, and Laura was very, very adamant anti-Christ. Very adamant. She was not always kind to the Cordovas and the DePolises and their family. She was not all, always respectful. She was not, she was not all any of that. And yet they pursued her and they pursued her and they pursued her. They gave her a place to live at their own expense. They paid for her meal. They took care of her. And guess what? About three weeks ago, on her own, Laura accepted Jesus Christ as her Savior. And, and to read Laura's words, literally one moment to the next, completely, completely different person. Literally. I mean... This, this woman is dying and she's telling, John, she's telling her daughter, aren't you so happy now that you're going to be raised in a, in a Christian home and, and I'm going to meet Jesus and, and pray, you need to receive Jesus. I mean, this lady, over, literally overnight, just like that, completely different. How was that accomplished? It was accomplished through prayer and it was accomplished. God used the generosity of our Cordova and a DePaulis' family. Glenda sat by her side for 12, 18 hours a day taking care of her. Every day. With not receiving gratitude. A lot of those days. Here's what I'm saying. Prayer coupled with the uh, lives of believers. Not saying they were perfect and they, would, they didn't know I was mentioning this and I just thought about it. So forgive me if I'm embarrassing you, but it makes the point. Prayer coupled with obedient lives of believers. Guess what God does? It advances the gospel. Go to, go to Titus 2, go all over the Bible. Prayer, coupled with obedient lives of believers, advances the gospel. With the goal, again, the goal was that Laura would be saved. And guess what? By God's grace, Laura was saved and she passed away just a few days ago. 
Glenda said as she took her final breath, she raised her hand, lifted up her hands, almost as if she was being received by her Heavenly Father. I, I, I've, I've heard that many times. This is a woman who was adamantly opposed to the gospel. And yet through prayer and the obedient lives of God's people, by God's grace received the gospel and was saved from her sins. But, but not, only, not only that, you see that God's plan requires holiness and harmony among His people. The word there in, cha- in verse 2, godliness and dignity, it, really, it literally means reverent or devout. What I'm saying and why I shared that is because the gospel begins, the, 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 the message of the gospel, seeing people come to know Christ begins with you and I, believer, applying the word to our own lives. It's not just with our words, it's applying the Bible by faith to our own lives. Literally, if you were to sum it up, what he is saying here is, church, be a people who takes God seriously. That's literally what he's saying there. This is not a joke. This isn't a game. Christianity isn't a mere preference. This This is life and death. This is heaven and hell. This is eternal destiny is in the balance. It's not a game. It's not, look, religion and all this, listen, it's not up to mere preference. Doctrine, theology matters. Every single one of us in here are going to spend eternity somewhere, either in heaven or in hell. And, And that's not always fun to preach, but it's the truth. 2 Corinthians 5, to be absent from the body for a believer is to immediately be present with the Lord. For a non-believer, it's immediately to be forever in the presence, or the absence rather, of the Lord. It's to be in torment. It's to be in agony. The Bible is very clear. And and what we do here is we deal with the hard things. I'm learning. One One of the occupational hazards of being a pastor is I won't always be popular, I won't always be your friends, but my job is to be found trustworthy and faithful and to share the word as accurately as I can. It's to feed the sheep. And I got to get over you guys not liking me and being popular, and I'm never probably going to be on the, the, you know what, I'm going to talk to my friends, and they're always going to have bigger churches than me. That's okay. That's okay. My job is to be faithful. To be faithful. There's 20,000 homes, 20,000 homes, within three miles of this church, ready to be built. Are we praying for them? I, I don't, I, they don't have to come here. Are we praying for them that they would go somewhere and hear from somebody the gospel of Jesus Christ and be saved? Are we praying for them? Do we care? I mean, literally 20,000 homes right here in our backyard. But are we living lives that are salt and light? Are we living lives that give off the fragrance of Christ that they would be attracted to? To be confronted, to be... And think about this. Think about the impact it must have had on Laura to be somewhat adversarial and day and night have Glenda DePaula sitting at her bedside taking care of her. Think about the impact that would have, day and night. Giving up her own life, giving up her own agenda giving up her retirement, if you will, what? To love an individual that oftentimes didn't love her back. 
And yet God used that. And, and the reality is this, even if God had not saved Laura, here's what Titus 2 says, live in such a way that your opponent has nothing bad to say about you, that anything that the enemy says about you, they'll be put to shame. She may not agree, the world may not agree, but they ought to have nothing bad to say about Christians. We ought to be the best employees. We ought to be the best students, not saying the best grades, but behaved. We ought to be the best husbands, the best wives. We ought to be the best friends. We ought to be the best neighbors. Why? Not so they will applaud us, so that they would applaud our great God. Having nothing bad to say about us. The, the reality is, you know, if you look at, at 1 Peter 3, 7, it says, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Even the way, listen, even the way that I live with Karen Basham as a, as a husband affects my prayers. Our lives matter. How we live matters. Matthew 5 talks about if you come to worship the Lord and you've got a problem with somebody, you're not at odds with somebody on the, another believer, whatever, what does it say? It says, you go take care of that before you think you're going to sit in here and worship me and get away with it. How we live matters. And, and the gospel matters. Ultimately, it's for the gospel's sake. The gospel's sake. Not that they'll applaud me or you, but that they'll, they'll see our great God and they'll be drawn to our great God. But he also says God's plan designates men as taking the leadership in prayer. And, and this, this passage begins to set the stage for, for what we will see next week with regards to women. And I, and I realize that that won't be a popular passage, but listen to me. We're going to talk to women and men next week. That, that passage, 9 through 15, deals with both of us. But it talks about men taking leadership. The, the Greek word for men in 2.8 means males, in contrast to women. And men, God has designed it for men to take leadership in the home and for men to take leadership in the church. The leadership, it, it's not an equality issue, it's not a worth issue, it's simply God has said, look, somebody's got to lead and I'm going to designate the man to be the leader in the home and I'm going to designate the man to be the leader in the church. It's not about worth, it's not about dignity, it's simply about God saying, look, this is the way it's going to be. And that will take the context for what we see in verses... 9 through 15, and, and here's, what I would, here's what I would want, and this is the phrase, I think I read it somewhere, I must have, because I don't think like this, but as I was reading 9 through 15, and I wrote it in my phone, I would want us as a church, and, and women, I, I'll say this to you, but our husbands play a huge role in this, young men, as you're looking for a, a wife or a girlfriend or whatever, who it is that you're attracted to, you play a role in this, if you're only attracted to to, to women who are a 10 out of 10 or whatever, if that's the only people you give attention to, whether their character backs that up or not, shame on you, men. Shame on you. And you're telling our young ladies and you're telling our young daughters that they need to be something that they don't need to be in order to get attention. And you're hurting them. And I would hope that, as I read that, here's what came to mind, that we would be a church, that we would encourage women, and that's who it's talking to here, to be beautifully sacrificial, not artificially beautiful. To be sacrificially beautiful, 
not artificially beautiful. We, we've been at the we've been at the the fair the last couple of days because Bradley is involved in FFA and guess what? You can take some pigs and some cows and all these nasty and you can dress them up real good. But at the end of the day, you know what that is? It's a pig. It's a pig. You you see what I'm saying? At the core, it's a pig. And here's my point. You can artificially make a lot of things look beautiful, but guess what? Deep down inside, you know what lasts? The person. The person. Character. All throughout Scripture. Verses 9 through 15, look at it. It says, it says women adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly, discreetly, not braided with hair. You know what? Outwardly. Don't focus on that outward stuff, but rather by means of good works as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. How you live matters. Character matters. Now, if that doesn't tempt you to want to come back next week, I don't know what. There'll be low attendance Sunday. I want all y'all to come in here, and we're going to have a ruler, and we're going to check the length of your hair. We're going to check the length of your dress. You better not have on makeup. No, that's not what he's saying. It's a heart issue. It's a heart issue. And see, here's the problem, guys and gals. We can put on a good show outwardly all day long and yet never deal with the heart. That's the Pharisees. He says in Matthew 15, what goes into a man's mouth doesn't make him unclean. What comes out of a man's mouth makes him unclean. Why? Because it's sourced in the heart. And we can all put on a good show and we never deal with the heart. And I want us to be a people that are sacrificially beautiful, not artificially beautiful. So, so not only is prayer a command, but you see on your handout, we are to pray that all people be reached with the gospel because that is in line with God's desire. That is in line with God's desire. Listen, li- listen to Ezekiel thirty-three eleven. God is speaking here. He says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his ways and live. We as Christians ought to be praying to that same extent. That they would turn, people would turn from their evil ways and repent. Listen, I can't, I can't, I can't explain. I can't explain. Look at verse 3. He says, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, one mediator, also between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. God is sovereign. That is clear in Scripture, and yet man is responsible. I can't solve that, and it would be better for all of us to leave it alone, because both realities are very true. God is sovereign. Man is responsible. And it is clear in Scripture... It's clear in Scripture. You're talking about the will of God. God has both a decreed will, you see it in a handout, and a declared will. A decreed will and a declared will. And it's very important, I think, that we get this understanding. His decree is what He ordains to happen, and He will make sure it happens. He will make sure it happens. That's His decree. That's His decreed will. His declared will is what he desires to happen, and yet man 
seemingly, at least on the outside, has responded to that. God desires, we see that. He desires all men to be saved and come to a saving knowledge of the truth. But does that happen? It doesn't. But his desire is that it happens. And he's made a way. And certainly those who he desires, certainly don't, that's a whole other argument, as you know, those whom he calls will certainly be saved. Yeah, but I don't know who those are. He does. My job is to share the gospel. I don't know who God's going to save or not. I don't know who's, who he's going to take the blinders off their eyes or not. But you know what he says, Chris? Don't worry about that. You pray and share the gospel, and I'll take care of that. He didn't take joy in, in, in seeing them not repent. I mean, he crucified his own son that whosoever would call upon the name of the Lord could be saved. I would beg every one of you on behalf of God, just like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, believe in the gospel. I'm an ambassador on God's behalf. Here's my cry to you. Believe in Jesus Christ's death, burial, or his resurrection. And confess you're a sinner and believe that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is the only satisfactory payment for your sin and my sin. That is the only way man or woman can be reconciled to a holy God. There is one way, one truth, Jesus Christ. He is the only life that could be put forth as a satisfactory substitute that God would be satisfied, that His wrath would be satisfied towards sin so that it would not fall on me, but it fell on Jesus Christ. Therefore, His wrath is satisfied. God can rightly allow Chris Basham to go into heaven. Why? Because all of His wrath was poured out on Jesus Christ. Therefore, God can be a righteous judge and allow a sinner into heaven. Why? Because Jesus Christ paid the punishment that I deserve to pay. He didn't sweep it under the rug. He didn't act like it didn't happen. He didn't say, oh, well, Chris, your good outweighs your bad, so I'm going to let you slide in. No, no, no. He said, God hates sin. He poured out his wrath on his son that whosoever would call upon the name of Jesus could be saved. That Jesus would be my substitute. I mean, you, you look at 2 Peter 3, 9, clearly the, that men and women would be saved is God's will. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Why did God allow Laura to supposedly get away with living the way she did all those years that she would come to repentance? She wasn't getting away with it. He was patient and he was slow and he was gracious. Why? That she would come to repentance. Romans 2, 4, same thing. Do not, do not, do not think that God's kindness and tolerance towards you is in vain. The desire of that is to lead you to repentance. When, when Jesus was going up to Jerusalem to die for the, the sins of the world according to the predetermined plan of God, that's Acts 2.23, you see this in Luke 13.34, he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who sent, her, sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. They wouldn't have it. If you were to go to Isaiah 45, verses 
21 and 22, God desires, He is worthy of the praise of all peoples of all nations. Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together who has announced this from old and who has since declared it. It is not I, the Lord. And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. For, for a Christian to think that there are multiple ways to go to heaven, the problem with that is it, con, it contradicts Scripture. Jesus, God, I mean, God right there said there is no other way. That's not, that's not fun to declare. But, but what the good news is that there's any way. That would be what amazes us is that there's any way. Not that there's one way, that there's any way. We get caught up on the fact that there's only one. No, no, you ought to be amazed that there's, any, there's one. That a holy God would make a way for you and I to go to heaven? That ought to amaze you. And you can't have multiple ways because they contradict each other. God himself in Isaiah 45, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. It can't be clearer. And ask yourself the question, is my heart in tune with God's heart? Is that what comprises my prayers? Is it the salvation of people or is it the comforts of Chris Basham? Is that what comprises most of my prayers? Is it people and their salvation? Or is it my comforts? Does my prayer life for the people I know who are without Christ, does it reflect God's desire to save people? Is there somebody that you're crying out to the Lord for on a daily, moment-by-moment basis, pleading that God would save them? Can you say that? Thirdly, we saw it last week, there's, there's one mediator why Christ came, it was, there's, the way of salvation involves a mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. We saw that. We don't need to review that or rehash that. We saw that. The reality is this, that the, the sufficiency of Christ and the gospel for all, and praise be to Christ alone, that was the point. We have personal communion with God through the work of Christ and His intercession for us right now. That's the only reason we can pray. Jesus alone can lay his hands on both God and man and bring them together as being fully God and fully man. Jesus alone has the right to lay his hands on both parties and bring them together. That's the whole point. To reconcile. He is our high priest. He's our advocate. He's our mediator. He's our king. He's our prophet. He fulfills all those roles perfectly. The point is this. Christ is enough. We don't need millions of gods. We have one God who is totally sufficient. One. And lastly, in verse 7, you see this. For this I was appointed a preacher and apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. As a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. The last point is this. We are to pray that all people be reached with the gospel because that is in line with the mission he has left us. God's plan and his way for reaching lost people, is people. It's believers. You and I are here as Christ's ambassadors, 
as his children, to represent the king, and to preach a gospel message to as many as people as we can and hope that as many people as possible come to know Jesus Christ and have their sins forgiven. That is our mission. That is our reason for existence. You, you look back at, at Romans 10, you talk about you know, God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. Look, look at what it says in Romans 10, verses 8 through 17. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Clear gospel message. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. It's so simple that a child can understand it, and it's so complicated that an adult can spend the rest of his life plumbing the depths of it, and I'm not sure we'll ever grasp the amazing statement that's given right there. That your and I's sins can be totally forgiven. We can be reconciled to a holy God. He says, For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. With the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Another promise. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. What he's saying there is this, all race, all nationality, no matter where you live, geography, any of that, there's one Lord. There's one way. There would have been no greater distinction in that day between a Jew and a Greek, and yet he has made them one. That was the mystery, if you will. Romans 9 through 11, Paul plums those depths. And, and, and at the end of it, guess what he says? How unsearchable is God? How unfathomable are his ways? This Paul saying that. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. But, but listen, this is the question, verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? That word preacher does not mean that you have to have minister on your business card to fulfill this. That word means to herald. It's a general term. It just means to herald something, to proclaim something. He says, how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Listen to me. Do not let Satan lie to you and tell you that you are not beautiful for sharing the gospel with somebody even if they don't believe. Even if they hate you for it. Listen to me. From God's standpoint, you're beautiful. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Regardless. Regardless of how the world wants you to feel or think, to share the gospel with somebody is a beautiful thing. But listen clearly. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. It's for, through you and I. Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Like our sign says there, I am with you always. Did somebody change that? Oh, always. It should be always. Yeah, I, I, that thing's... Uh, Zerny made that. I, I, I appreciate that. I've always... People laugh and ask, why is there not an S there? Because Zerny made it. I don't know what to tell you. But when you leave here, when you leave here, distracted, sorry. When you leave here, listen to me. You're leaving on mission. You're leaving on mission. My job is to equip you. My goal is to equip you 
that you would be mature in Christ, Ephesians 4, that you would not be blown around by every wind and wave and trickery of doctrine, that you would understand the truth as this Bible purports it, that you would build your life totally, solely on this word, that you'd not be drawn in with, with all these other truths that are supposed truths that are out there that are lies. I mean, Paul says it here, truth. I'm telling the truth. You know what truth does? Truth eliminates all other options. Truth. It eliminates all the others. It affirms the reality. What he's saying is this, the gospel is reliable. And, And here's the final point. God uses those who have experienced His saving grace in Christ to proclaim and explain the message to others. 2 Corinthians 1.3, comfort others with the comfort you've been comforted with. That's the very essence of a testimony. God uses you and I who have experienced His saving grace to reach others with that saving grace. And if we're quiet, that's on us. God's desire is that, we, that all would hear and all would know. And His desire is that He would use His people to speak to the reality of the experience, that well, who they know God to be, who He's proven to be in our lives, and he would sh- that we would share that. And the challenge for us is those who pray, if we would do this, if we would pray like this, you begin to get a burden for the lost. And oftentimes in our prayers, when we're praying biblically, what happens is our heart begins to be conformed to God's heart. God no longer becomes our butler. We're no longer using prayer to get Him to do our will. God's using prayer to get us to do His will. That's what happens in prayer. Our hearts begin to align with God's. And He begins to, God uses prayer to conform our wills to His and not vice versa. We oftentimes think prayer is us conforming God's will to ours. No, no, no. He's conforming our will to His. And God's desire is to see people saved. The question is, is that your desire? Is that what comprises your prayers? Is there at least one person on your heart that you're pleading with God to see them saved? I pray that we'd be a church that are regularly, regularly boldly approaching God's throne with people on our heart. Not stuff, not material stuff, but people. Co-workers, friends, neighbors. Seeing someone to come to Christ, it's not about me being cute enough or slick enough or clever enough or having enough answers. It's a supernatural thing, John 3. And we need to beg God that He'd use us to see people come to know Him.